Bite-Sized Birthday Biography Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira. This is a podcast which shines a spotlight on a person who was born on this day at some point in history, somewhere in the world, who made a positive, lasting impact. Today, February 18th, we're going to talk about the insanely talented Paul Williams, the man who built Hollywood. What do Cary Grant... Bill Bojangles Robinson, Lucille Ball, and Desi Arnaz, and Frank Sinatra all have in common, aside from being famous? If you guessed they all hired Paul Williams to design homes for them, then you win whatever change I can find in my couch cushions. Paul was arguably one of the most important architects of old Hollywood, and I am embarrassed to say that before I started doing research for this February 18th podcast, I had never heard of him, despite my deep love of old Hollywood history. Aside from designing incredible homes for his wealthy private clients, he also designed some of the most iconic Hollywood landmarks, many of which are still standing today. And unlike many architects, he did not limit himself to any tiny niche. And over his long and very illustrious career, he would design or work on not only private mansions and Hollywood hotels, but also courthouses, airports, churches, hospitals, schools, restaurants, elementary, high schools, and even universities. He built mansions in neighborhoods that he wasn't allowed to live in. And he created hotels he wasn't allowed to stay in. And he built schools that his children would not be allowed to go to. So Paul Revere Williams was born in Los Angeles to parents Chester and Lila, who had recently relocated from Memphis for two reasons. One, they wanted to cash in on the booming fruit business in the sunny Southern California area. And the other more sinister reason was that both Chester and Lila were both losing their battles with tuberculosis, and they desperately hoped that the warm climate would buy them some more time. California was pushing a massive PR campaign at that time to get people and money and the railroads into the state, and they leaned heavily on the health benefits of living in a temperate climate by the beach, as well as the fortune that one could make by raising oranges. Sadly, though, no amount of sunshine could save Chester and Lila, and when Paul was two, his dad died from tuberculosis. After struggling to support the family by his meager wages, hawking fruit from a cart in the farmer's market. Lila managed to survive for two more years, somehow supporting Paul and his older brother, Chester Jr., until she died of tuberculosis as well. So at this point, 13-year-old Chester Jr. and 4-year-old Paul were both orphans. The boys entered foster care and were separated and placed in different homes. Paul was fortunate enough to be placed in a loving and supportive home, and he was raised by Charles and Emily Clarkson, a very lovely couple who encouraged his interest in art. His adoptive parents told him that he was intelligent and capable and that he could do anything that he put his mind to. Chester Jr. would unfortunately die within the next decade from pneumonia, making Paul the only surviving member of his family. Being an orphan is bad enough, but being a black orphan in the early 1900s was rough. It was Paul's saving grace, though, that his family had moved out to California because the opportunities that he would have out there drastically overshadowed any opportunities that he would have in Tennessee. Was there discrimination? Of course. But the overt violence and the KKK presence was not there, and that was a godsend for little Paul and his future. Despite being the only black child in his entire elementary school, Paul thrived, showing himself to be a brilliant student with a naturally creative mind. Before school and on weekends, he worked as a newspaper boy. 
After attending the Los Angeles Polytechnic High School, he moved into the Los Angeles School of Art and Design, then the Los Angeles branch of the Buzard Institute of Design, and finally onto USC, where he finished uh, his engineering degree in 1919. There wasn't a formal architecture degree available there at that time. So he started to enter design contests, which were ideal because the pieces were judged without the architects there. So every award that he received, which added to his resume and his clout, he did so on merit. Had he been present when his sketches were being critiqued, it is unlikely that he would have been given those same accolades. Paul took a quick break during his studies to marry the love of his life, Delamay Gibbons, on June 27, 1919. They would go on to have three children, a son, Paul Jr., who died within hours of being born, and two daughters, ironically named Norma and Marilyn. This same year, he won an architectural design contest, and in 1921, Paul became the first African-American fully certified architect west of the Mississippi, and by the next year, he had opened up his own office. Not everyone was supportive of a black architect opening his own firm. Shocking, times being what they were in the 1920s, even in California, and Paul was straight up told, your people can't afford you and white clients won't hire you. That wasn't exactly the case, though, as his future clientele would show, but Paul did have to master the art of drawing upside down, as most of his white clients refused to sit next to him, and he had to draw out the mansions they were paying him to design from across the table. He also had to tour job sites with his hands clasped behind his back, as many of the contractors he interacted with would not shake a black man's hand. Keeping the wealthy white clients plentiful enough to survive was hard enough for a black man in any profession, and Paul struggled for a few years after opening his own office and took a position under famed architect John Aston, who designed the Griffith Observatory, the Shrine Auditorium, and the Los Angeles City Hall. Paul quickly rose to chief draftsman and then launched out on his own. After becoming the first black member of the American Institute of Architects, Paul was able to enjoy the housing boom in Southern California that the blossoming movie industry was fueling. He created smaller homes for clients of more modest means and tasteful and unique mansions for his more wealthy clients. One of his first major commissions was horse breeder Jack Atkin. When Paul presented him with the plans for the massive, brick-covered, English Tudor-inspired mansion that Jack had wanted, Jack looked at the plans and said they were great. So Paul told him that the price tag was going to be $350,000, which adjusted for today's inflation is $5.5 million. Jack shook his head and said, nope, I don't like the price. I told my buddies at the racetrack that my new house was going to be a half a million dollars. So find some other way to spend another $150,000 on it. And Paul did, of course, and the result was a home that can be seen today in such Hollywood films as Topper and Murder, She Wrote. Paul had a number of signature elements that were totally innovative at his time, including retractable screens, the patio being treated as an extension of the home, the gently curving staircase, making massive homes feel cozy and welcoming and not like giant sterile palaces. And with stylistic flourishes such as these, it wasn't long before the name of Paul Williams began to make its rounds through the much smaller but non-digitally connected Hollywood community. Paul's first mansion for one of the Hollywood elite was the home that he designed for silent film actor Lon the Man with a Thousand Faces Cheney, best known today for his incredible work in the 1923 Hunchback of Notre Dame and the 1925 Phantom of the Opera. 
Lon hired Paul to design a home for him in 1930, but before Lon could actually move in, he got pneumonia and died at the age of 47. But the work that Paul did on this home was still enough to get his name circulating throughout the circles of the elite and the offers started to pour in. Next up was Johnny Weissmuller, the Olympic swimmer turned Tarzan movie character. He was a big fan of the Mediterranean revival look that was all the rage in 1920s and 30s Hollywood. Located at 414 St. Pierre Road in what is today the neighborhood of Holmby Hills in the Westwood District, an area of astonishingly enormous mansions, infinity pools, and tennis courts, lies the dilapidated remains of the mansion that Paul constructed. This neighborhood boasts residents as Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, Walt Disney, Barbara Stanwyck, and Robert Taylor. Paul Williams actually designed Stanwyck and Taylor's home as well. Bing Crosby lived there, Gene Harlow, Frank Sinatra, Barbara Streisand, Neil Diamond, and most visibly and recently, Kylie Jenner in her $36.5 million shack. The pink 8,700-square-foot mansion that Paul designed for Johnny Weissmuller had a 300-foot swimming pool that wrapped around the house like a moat with an electric waterfall that kept the water clean and flowing. Later owners actually added a lagoon large enough for their boats. Johnny was a big guy. He had big tastes. Aside from the fact that he literally ordered a pink mansion with a moat, he also had Paul include a massive ballroom, 20-foot-high ceilings with hand-painted fleur-de-lis and massive marble fireplaces. This house would actually trade hands a lot over the years, being passed off to William Randolph Hearst's mistress, Marion Davies, and Mick Jagger, among others. To date, the mansion has been vacant for 20 years, and Google Map images show a faded facade in disrepair, overgrown shrubs climbing the chain-link fence surrounding the abandoned property. It is currently listed as being the property of a member of the Nicolosi family, the descendants of Italian sculptor Joseph Nicolosi, who lived there in the 1950s. Another of Paul's masterpieces, possibly the most famous one due to its walkthrough tour on an episode of Person to Person with Edward R. Murrow, was Frank Sinatra's snazzy, Japanese-inspired modern bachelor pad. Located in the Truesdale Estate neighborhood of Beverly Hills, this was the house that Frank wanted to make himself feel at home at in a decade that saw the breakup of his first marriage and the creation and implosion of his second. Viewers of the person-to-person program that night fell in love with the style of Frank's swanky swing and abode, prompting newspaper articles with eye-rolling titles like Negro Architect Build Sinatra Home. Paul was at the top of his game. He was wealthy. He could dress his family in the nicest clothes and buy his wife fur coats and great cars. The family traveled around the world. They would even dine at the White House and appear on TV shows during their life. But Paul still left his office every day after designing million-dollar homes for stars and returned to a tiny bungalow in a rundown neighborhood where he and his family were allowed to live. Paul, at this point, could afford almost any house that he actually built, but he would never be allowed to live in any of those neighborhoods. Money just wasn't enough. Yet Paul made it a point, as his granddaughter pointed out in the PBS documentary on his life called Hollywood's Architect, to not bring these thoughts back home. He did not want to burden his wife and children, and instead he resolved to turn his frustration into further financial success. The only place to go was up, in this case literally. Commercial buildings, high-rises in particular, were in high demand, and the commissions were far more lucrative. At the time, that market was cornered by a good old boys club of white guys who knew, worked, played, and promoted together. 
and letting a black man into their ranks was not something they were eager to do. Yet, Paul's reputation as a designer of exquisite homes appealed to two men who each wanted a building for their respective companies that felt like an upscale home. These two businesses were the Musical Corporation of America, MCA, their headquarters in Beverly Hills, and Saks Fifth Avenue of Beverly Hills. The MCA building was a breakthrough for Paul and for design in general. It was a massive business headquarters designed like a New England colonial mansion, the first major commercial property designed to look like a private home. Following the success of the RCA headquarters and Saks Fifth Avenue, he was asked to redesign the Hollywood Knickerbocker Hotel, which also appeared in some backgrounds on season four of I Love Lucy when she's in Hollywood, and would ironically be the hotel that William Frawley, who played Fred Mertz, would collapse and die in front of in 1966. He also designed the famous Chasen's Restaurant. Chasen's was arguably the most popular restaurant among the Hollywood elite of that era. Walt Disney, Marilyn Monroe, Frank Sinatra, Groucho Marx, Shirley Temple, Jimmy Stewart, Cary Grant, W.C. Fields, James Cagney, Alfred Hitchcock, Clark Gable, and F. Scott Fitzgerald were all regulars. Sinatra, Stewart, Hitchcock, and Groucho each had their own private booth there. Their signature dish was their chili, which was so amazing that Elizabeth Taylor paid for pots of it to be flown over to her while she was filming Cleopatra in Rome. Aside from famous Hollywood landmarks, Paul was also busy building churches, YMCAs, more hotels, more department stores. There was literally nothing that he couldn't do. Paul moved into a larger office, and he assembled an integrated team of architects, draftsmen, and even Hollywood set designers. He didn't care what color the man was, as long as he was the best. And he needed all the help that he could get, because commissions were coming in from Las Vegas, Washington, D.C., and even South America. As the 1940s rolled around, Paul began to take on government commissions, the largest being the Naval Air Station in Long Beach, California. Following the war, he designed the crescent wing of the Beverly Hills Hotel, giving it the iconic look that it has today, as well as the fountain coffee room, which is untouched today. The hotel was a landmark back then, attracting stars like Frank Sinatra and Marilyn Monroe, and it still is one today. The massive remaining suite that is still styled the way Paul left it is called the Paul Williams Suite, and it is the favorite hotel room of Jimmy Fallon and Russell Crowe. But Paul was not allowed to stay at the hotel or eat by the pool unless he was seated with the white managers of the establishment. Racism was still a more pervasive factor than wealth, fame, and overall success. Routinely, clients would show up at Paul's office, walk in, see that he was black, and start to back out the door. Paul would insist on flipping the script, asking them how much they planned to spend, and then telling them that their budget was beneath him. This would usually make the clients eager to work with him. The most coveted project of the era was the building of LAX Airport. Paul and his staff of a dozen did not have the manpower to bid and tackle such a massive build on their own, especially when they were competing against firms of 300 architects. Yet during his pitch to the city, his desire to make the airport serve the flyer impressed the board so much that Paul's firm was brought on as part of the LAX design team. This is arguably his most visited and known creation. 
Yet Paul wanted more, not just for himself, but for his community. So he started a home loan business for African-Americans to allow them more housing options. This would allow not only people of color to secure home ownership, but also help finance risky designs that traditional big banks were too scared to fund. One such example is the famous Stahl House, a one-story modern home in the hills of Hollywood with panoramic views of the city visible through the floor-to-ceiling glass walls around the whole living room. This house, designed by Pierre Koning, can be seen in such movies as Karina Karina and Playing by Heart. In the latter, it is John Stewart's character's home in the movie. He also plays an architect. Its existence today is due to the loan that the Broadway Federal Savings provided. By the 1950s, certain neighborhoods were starting to open up to black people of means, and Paul was finally able to design his dream house in Lafayette Square. He was grateful to finally be able to give Della the home that she always wanted. Not that they saw much of it, though. Della and Paul were at the heart of the black social scene in Los Angeles, and most of their free time was taken up with parties and events with friends. Paul made it a point to not fraternize with clients or even other architects that much, preferring to keep pleasure and business separate. The one exception was his client, Danny Thomas, the comedian, actor, producer, and philanthropist. Born Amos Muziad Jacob Karoz to Lebanese immigrants, Danny and Paul bonded over their mutually rough childhoods and found that they loved spending time together. One day, Danny approached Paul saying, I want to build a children's hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. I want it to be open to kids of all races and religions, and I want it to be free for patients. Would you design it for me? So Paul agreed, and he designed the first St. Jude's Children's Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. He did so free of charge because Danny was a great friend, but he made him promise not to tell anyone because Paul didn't want to be inundated with requests for free buildings. Today, there are eight affiliate St. Jude's hospitals, and they are the leading name in pediatric cancer research and treatment. Even though St. Jude's costs $2.8 million a day just to run, patients do not pay a penny as the hospital is a 501c3 nonprofit. This was the crown jewel in Paul's career. Paul retired in 1973, and he spent the rest of his years with his family, enjoying his time especially with his grandchildren. He died on January 23, 1980, at the age of 85. In the post-Rodney King beating L.A. riots of April 1992, the building that housed much of Paul's paperwork was burned to the ground. The rioting masses were not aware that they were destroying a 65-year-old Black-run business whose whole purpose was to help the Black community. Thankfully, the documents destroyed were office-related, and all of his creative work, like his sketches and blueprints, were at the home of his granddaughter Karen, who was working on a book about him. Today, many of his homes are occupied by people who purchased them partly because of their connection to Paul Williams. And thanks to the preservation of his blueprints, renovations are able to be constructed according to Paul's original unique vision. My sources today were Wikipedia, NPR, PBS, and the Paul Williams Project website. Thank you so much for joining me for our birthday celebration of Paul Williams. Please join me on March 3rd when we talk about Dr. Samira Musa, the first female PhD nuclear physicist in the world and the first Egyptian female nuclear physicist. 